0: You are listening to Humanities Engaged, where we take a closer look at the value of a liberal arts education. I'm Steve McFarlane, and I teach philosophy in the Division of Humanities at the University of Minnesota Morris. I'm joined by UMM student and brains of the operation, Adam Kretz. Say hi, Adam.
1: Hey there, everybody. Thank you for listening. You'll hear me chime in occasionally during the interview with a couple questions, and I'll join Steve afterwards to discuss what we learned.
0: We are coming to you from the University of Minnesota Morris, made possible with funding from the Mellon Foundation. Please join us as we interview UMM faculty to learn how they teach and why they teach.
1: Today's guest is Dr. Stacy Aronson. Dr. Aronson is a member of the Spanish Department in the Division of the Humanities. She is also the current chair of the Humanities Division. Dr. Aronson received her Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota. She often teaches classes such as Readings in Spanish at the Morris campus. We bring you now to our interview.
2: I started studying languages when I was in high school. Um, I went to a rural high school. We didn't have a lot of language options. We had Spanish and French, two years of each. So I took two years of Spanish, and then I sat out for two years. And when I went to university, when I went to college, I decided I wanted to continue studying languages. Uh, So I majored in Spanish as an undergraduate at the University, um, Ohio Wesleyan University in Ohio. And I majored in English as well because I loved literature and I loved writing. And when I finished my undergraduate, I didn't know what to do with my life. And so in a moment of desperation, I decided to go to graduate school. And I attended the University of Kansas and got a master's degree in Spanish. And then I ended up finding Morris. And at some point after I'd been here for a few years, I went and did a Ph.D. at the Twin Cities in Spanish.
0: And so in high school, you took a couple years off of languages. What made you go back?
2: Well, I just I'd always loved Spanish. I, I seem to have a good ear for pronunciation for for accent um, And I just it was just something that I was fascinated with. I liked it.
0: Yeah There wasn't any there wasn't like you weren't missing it when you weren't taking it. Well, I was but oh I didn't you weren't okay. options
2: back Back in the day. There was no, there was no um, A B there was no I B there was no college in the schools. There was none of that so uh, my option would have been to take French and not that I was opposed to taking French. I, I, I applaud my French colleagues who teach French uh, <laughs> very nobly. Uh, but I didn't want to lose any of the edge with Spanish. And I was afraid that French and Spanish would, would somehow combine in a strange way in, in my mind. So I so I ended up sitting out for two years. I didn't really have another choice. That was all the yeah. Spanish that they offered.
0: So in a way, it's um, a call for more languages in the schools. I mean, you you, you could have easily have gone a different direction i suppose give, I given have. that that was the cap of, uh, uh, in your experience at school at the time
2: it could have absolutely yeah
1: well i, I just w- i'd just like to ask like real quick so yeah like going to grad school out of desperation like that's interesting <laughs> and so and then you went all the way and got the phd so i i'm just i'm just curious when i think about grad school i have a friend who, who went to morris yeah um, and they did their master's in forensic anthropology uh-huh. and we were, we were dating at the time, and I got to kind of just see from the outside how intense it was. And so it's just a curious remark to me to to do grad school out of desperation. Cause it, is. it seems like quite the uh, undertaking.
2: It, it is. It is. It, 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 it may not have been... Um... It probably was a little ill-advised, but I, but I did talk to my faculty to see if they thought that I would be a good candidate for graduate school, uh, what would be a good graduate school to apply to, and at that time, the University of Kansas was, was a pretty good place to go. Um, once I finished at the University of Kansas with a master's degree, I was off in California doing a program for intensive Portuguese, and while I was in California, I received a phone call from the department Uh, at Kansas. There was a position open here at Morris, and there is apparently, there was a connection between Morris and the University of Kansas. There was a a woman who had graduated from UMM, went to Kansas, and was at Kansas the same time I was, pursuing her PhD. So there was this Morris-Kansas connection anyway, and they were looking for somebody to come and teach Spanish. And my faculty knew there that I wanted to take a little break after I got my master's degree, and they called me and said, we've, nom- we've, we've recommended you for a position at University of Minnesota Morris. Would you like to apply for it? And I didn't know anything about it. I'd never applied for a, an actual bona fide university teaching position before, although when I was at Kansas, I was a TA. But I came out here oh, probably in July and it was an emergency hire, uh, it was very quick, but I ended up staying here, and that was in 1985, and I've been here since, in various iterations. My position has been temporary, my position has been tenure track, it has been tenured, now I'm division chair, so it's, it's, run, it's run the gamut.
1: Um, wow, so yeah, you just kind of fell into it. Then. I
2: absolutely <laughs> fell into it, and I, I always said as an undergraduate, I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to be a teacher, I don't want to be a teacher, but I am a teacher. So this and I think this happens to a lot of people mm. you know they don't do the traditional undergraduate I'm going to be an education major um, and then they fall into to teaching and find that they love it and have some kind of an affinity for it.
0: What's some current issues you're interested in these days that you're working on uh, depends it depends
2: which hat that I'm wearing yeah. if I'm if I'm talking about um, my my current work as division chair I have I have many things that I'm interested in, many things that I'm, I'm working on right now, different sorts of uh, initiatives and hires and fun stuff administrative things like that. In my professional uh, intellectual life, um, I usually would cons- I would consider myself a scholar of early modern Spain early modern Spanish literature. So this is 16th 17th century. I have for many years worked on, representations of sexual violence in primarily 17th century literature although a few years ago i embarked on a different a different trajectory but that was developed out of that into that research interest and i've been looking at what are essentially early modern tabloid publications in english they call them broadsheets or broadsides they have different names in different languages because this sort of tabloid publication was popular beginning about the 1500s, 1600s, and popular throughout Europe. You you find examples of these all over the place. And I've been working with Spanish ones that are housed in libraries in very interesting places that I get to go to and maybe do some research. I've, I've done research at the National Library in, in Madrid, at the Royal Library in Madrid, at the British Library, and also at the Uh, Samuel Pepys Library at Magdalen College in Cambridge. I was doing some work there because they have Spanish collections there as well. And what's interesting about these, I've been looking at the, uh, the, the, the topic of female criminality and female deviance. And this started with a piece I had discovered quite by accident. I think I was in the library waiting for someone to bring me a book or a manuscript and I found something that had to do with a woman... And it ties into my earlier interest with with sexual violence. These pieces are often, um, they were very cheaply sold. They tended not to be bound. They were sold on the street. Sometimes they had a musical accompaniment to them. And they would be sung. And they were really for semi-literate populations. So it's very uh, comparable to a tabloid publication that you might find in the grocery store. Usually very salacious, uh, very provocative titles and subject matter to uh, encourage more more readership. Sometimes they have illustrations on them. A lot of times the illustrations come from stock kits, just kind of woodcuts to indicate who are the cast of characters that might show up in this particular piece. And sometimes they're custom made depending on whatever you're talking about. Um, some of these might have to do with miraculous occurrences. You might have a baby that was born with three heads, and so they would do an illustration of this of this baby, and then they would talk about it. Oftentimes assigning it a, a, a political connotation. Uh, there was a famous one called the Monster of Ostrisa, I think it is. I may have that wrong. But it's a place in Turkey, and it's this monstrous child that was born. And it's all supposed to be an allusion to the decadence and the debauchery of the Muslim Ottoman Turkish Empire. Um, So you have a lot of that. But the ones I work with have to do with deviance, and it's something I've been working with for about about three years, um, uh, female deviance and criminality.
1: Is it a tabloid in the sense that we know a tabloid now where everyone— you know, most people are aware that this is kind of on the fringes of what we would expect from, you know, journalism or something like that. People were, took it the same way then. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. They, I believe so. I mean, this is really sort of the dawn of newspapers. Uh, What was happening in Spain at the time is that you were starting to get more kind of more regularized mail routes. People were in the Americas and in the colonies, and they were sending back news missives about different things that were happening or battles that happened. And so you started to get sort of correspondence going back and forth. And sometimes if there was an interesting letter, a publisher might say, hey, that looks interesting. People would buy that. They would pay money to read about that. And they might either steal it. I don't know how they how they acquired these, these personal uh, narrations. But they might do their own version of a particular narration. Put an illustration on it, sell it on the street, and people would buy it. Sometimes you you would see the same story being told in different languages in different places because plagiarism was was just a normal a normal thing. You know, flattery. What did they say? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So if there was a successful um, broadsheet that sold in Italy, well, maybe the Spaniards would kind of steal it and they would use their own version of the illustration and they would reproduce it in spanish but this the stories are really are are, are interesting and i've and i've done work with students partly because they're a fairly quick read. They tend to be a certain limited number of pages. The language is more dense. It's written in a very old style of print. So it takes a little time for them to get used to reading it. Uh, But when I've done work with students, I've had them learn to do what are called paleographic transcriptions. So they essentially reproduce in 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 a Word document something that we could edit or we could cut and paste if we needed to. But they try to replicate as much as possible the, the particular characters that were used at the time. And then we do kind of an interpretation, an analysis, and then maybe a socio sociohistorical contextualization of it. So if it's a piece that deals with witchcraft, let's say a woman who was convicted and executed for witchcraft, well, maybe we study uh, what, what did witchcraft mean in the 17th century? What, what was it? Um, how was it prosecuted? Um, different things like that. So there's lots of different areas. But because of these things tend to be really sexy, they've got a lot of sex, a lot of violence, just as tabloids do today to sell, students find them really interesting.
1: Is, is that how it's related to your interest in sexual violence in that it time is. period? yeah. It's just like that's where you go to find stuff that's... Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, there, there are. There's canonical literature that deals with sexual violence. There are canonical figures from Cervantes to one of his contemporaries who was named Maria de Zayas, who also dealt with sexual violence. These do it in a non-canonical way. So this would be very much um, popular literature.
1: Yeah, and, and maybe just spell out canonical for our well, our, our canonical. Audience.
2: Canonical would be something that would be that you might expect to find in a literary anthology Mm. that has been determined by whomever, the powers that be, that this is good literature, you know, Don Quixote, for example. This is not anything you would ever find anthologized because this is popular literature. The interesting thing for me is that it's designed for a a semi-literate audience, generally. Books at the time were very expensive to produce, very expensive to buy. Many people didn't, unless you were very wealthy, did not have libraries. But you could buy these cheap sheets on the street sold for very, very little money. And if you didn't know how to read, you might have someone that you knew who could read it to you. The interesting thing uh, is that even though these were designed for semi-literate audiences, the reason that we have them today and we can find them in, in Spanish, in French, in Italian, in English, is that wealthy collectors also purchased them. And when these people died and they did what were called post-mortem inventories, kind of going through and seeing, all right, what what possessions did this person uh, have uh, that we can inventory, perhaps they have outstanding bills that we have to take care of. In these inventories, they would find these, these broadsheets. And so there are collections of these broadsheets dispersed in libraries throughout Europe not necessarily the ones, the particular subject matter that I'm working on, but, but but there are many of them. Spanish ones are all over the place. In fact, I was trying to look at um, catalogs of them in different libraries in different countries to see if there was a library I could justify visiting um, with some of my research money, but uh, I only got as far as the UK and hmm. Spain, of course.
1: Yeah, that, that's it's super interesting. My, my English professor... Um, that I make the class I'm in now is, is pointed out and and even my philosophy classes. I've had professors talk about like when you're trying to think about like, what to write about, you know, they, They've both said like what is kind of provoking you while you're reading and this is kind of like a new idea to me And so it's, it's interesting to make the connection with a, a much deeper more involved um, research project because because it's like what is going to fuel writing my paper you probably need a lot you know, maybe an even deeper interest, something even more provoking to fuel a, you know, long research uh, endeavor at at the, you know, scholarly level. So that's that's super interesting to hear about.
2: I think your professor is right. And I've told students this when they're trying to figure out a research project, either for a senior capstone or one of the upper level literature courses we teach. You can have very productive intellectual engagement with something. Doesn't mean you have to like it it can be something that really bothers you. And you're trying to get to the bottom of what this, where is this source of irritation coming from? And that's that's how I started, really started this journey, probably more than, oh gosh, I don't even want to hazard a guess how many years ago, decades ago. Now there was, you know, there are some people who would say and uh, that many of us scholars who have very niche fields of research that involve some level of, trauma or some level of abuse really we are in a sense benefiting intellectually from someone else's suffering and I can certainly see that, that 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 is true that can be very true whether you're working on the field that I worked in for probably more than 20 years which is sexual violence and its manifestation in literature I can think of other things as well some of the stuff that I'm doing now with the tabloids with the criminality eh, the same thing the same thing.
1: You're saying like that's something to be sensitive of, or is there some? Does that put some obligation upon you? You're saying?
2: Yeah, that's very, yeah, that's very interesting. It's something that, that that scholars have been talking about recently. I've seen some articles in uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education and some other places um, in the MLA where, you know, what what is our role? What what should our role be when we are in a sense benefiting professionally because we're getting. You know, we're doing research, we're getting publications, we're getting research funds to go and to libraries. Do we have any sort of a responsibility? And what is that responsibility when we're working with niche topics that really touch on um, abuse towards others or suffering of other people? Even, even if these are fictitious people, even if these are fictitious characters, it reflects a, a sociocultural reality, so I haven't quite I haven't quite decided where where I fit into that, but I certainly can see that, hmm. and I certainly have benefited from that, professionally through publications dealing with sexual violence.
0: Well, you mentioned some uh, work you do with students and mm-hmm. how you get them involved. I wonder if you could say more about how you design tasks in your class mm-hmm. classes, um, and you might have like different approach different classes, like a lower level versus upper level. So, so how do you come up with these ideas for, for, or I mean, what kind of ideas do you come up with to get students to learn more about Spanish?
2: Well, it, it, it very much is dependent on the level that we're teaching. And, yeah. and here we all teach multiple levels. We teach beginning, intermediate, advanced language, um, writing, reading, listening, speaking. Uh, at some level, I'm also teaching literature. I'm teaching a survey class right now. Next, I'm thinking next year I'll be teaching a seminar uh, in more my area of expertise, my area of research. It very much depends on the level mm-hmm. because the beginning and intermediate levels are really developmental. So you don't want to do anything to scare anybody <laughs> away. You want to keep them in class. You want to keep them engaged. You want to keep them interested and excited. Um, but the kinds of things I have them do are very, very different, very, very different. Um, One of the new pedagogies right now is the flipped classroom. Everybody's kind of jumping on the bandwagon. Just, you know, uh, FYI, that is not a new pedagogy that's been around for decades because we do it in foreign language all the time.
1: Maybe you just want to spell that out for our audience, the the flipped flipped classroom.
2: classroom. The flipped classroom, I think, my my understanding of the current iteration of it is that you – Students will will study the material before they come to class, and class is used really for homework or for practice. We've done this in foreign language for for decades. Students in in my classes, uh, and I think many of my colleagues in Spanish, we often use a communicative approach. So students will study the grammar and the vocabulary on their own at home maybe through their super sites or through the books, that's the original flipped classroom is is a book that you read before coming to class. But then you come to class and we try to create activities that will utilize the vocabulary, utilize the grammar in some realistic simulations that are fun, that engage them with their classmates, so they'll come in and they'll practice something you know if they're learning food vocabulary they come into the classroom we might have some dialogues that take place in a restaurant where they have to order food you know it could be something as simple as that when we get into the upper levels of course the, the the level of engagement is is more intense and we can we can expect that students have a little bit more verbal facility they can speak a little bit more easily than they do at the beginning level the beginning levels we're just trying to get words to come out of their their mouths. Um, I know in my classes, I try to minimize correction, overt correction, because it shuts people down when they feel really insecure about speaking. And speaking is often a skill that people are, are, are very scared about doing. One of the last skills that develops for most people in the foreign language, if it comes out their mouth, it's, it's good. It's good.
1: Oh, interesting. So, you, so you, know, uh, you don't take the time in that moment to let them know it was wrong.
2: If, if it's something grammatical or something in, in terms of pronunciation or grammar or perhaps incorrect word choice, what I would do, and many of my colleagues do this too, I'm not unique in this, do sort of gentle correction. So maybe model it back to them in a way so they can, oh yeah, I didn't quite say that correctly. I try not to be too much of a pest on pronunciation at the beginning level because it shuts people down. I want them to speak And errors are a natural part of the process of learning a language. It's going to happen. Now, some of the research I do with students is usually done as map projects or directed studies. In a map project. Morris Academic Partnerships, where the students assist the faculty member in a research project. Many of those have been more collaborative for for me. In fact, there have been uh, projects where I've allowed the students to take the lead on what we actually research because we could go different ways and the students have come up with really interesting projects given sort of the parameters that i lay out and we've had a couple students that have gone with me to international conferences and presented i think the most recent was in the summer of 2016 a map student and i went to a conference in san sebastian to an international conference and she presented and Mm. we had a wonderful experience and we did a little traveling to see a few things how cool yeah that was fun i think she enjoyed that
1: oh sounds awesome
0: and the idea behind, the reason it's called the flip classroom, yeah. and the way and what you're mentioning is they do the homework to learn the grammar or the rule, right. then they come to class to practice is the flip part is typically the, the old, you know, quote unquote old style is teacher gets up front, speaks for 45 minutes, right. and then says, okay, now practice at right. home or something like that, and the idea is language is going to be more of a skill than uh, just something you memorize. Exactly. Exactly. So how do you get them to practice the skill aspect of it?
2: Well, for... For the students in my language classes, and, and, and a lot of my colleagues do the same thing. I'm, like I say, I'm not unique in this. But the students will have an assignment that they have some activities to do on their super site where they'll be learning new vocabulary. They might be reading a grammar explanation as to how to do something. Because we tend not to lecture on grammar. There are very few grammar points that I even lecture on in class. There are a few that are really sticking points, and I do lecture on those in English for the beginning classes. But then, when the students come in, we're going to do something hands-on where they're going to practice it. It might be a, a dialogue, it might, a very controlled dialogue. It might be, it might be a skit. It might be I, different things. It, it kind of depends on the day. Um, we do a lot of interaction with the students, um, where they'll be in pair work or in small groups. Uh, a lot of interaction with the faculty member, but just trying to get them to utilize the grammar structures and the concepts and the vocabulary in a meaningful way in the classroom. We try as best we can to replicate a foreign language environment in the classroom, even though it's, we realize it's artificial and it's only for what 65 minutes or 100 minutes, um, but we try to have an immersion classroom, so it's all in Spanish. Uh, and I know many, most of my colleagues do this, and they do this in other languages too. Again, I'm not unique. This is a, a typical foreign language pedagogy.
0: And the and key idea is, you can pronounce the word quickly to them a million times. Mm-hmm. That's not how learning the language is going right. to work. Is that right?
2: Well, that that is true. And also, they can they can they can have a handle on a, an understanding, an intellectual understanding of a certain grammar concept. Mm. Does that mean they can utilize it? Absolutely right. not. They can know it intellectually, but they haven't had an opportunity to practice it. And so we try to create that environment for them. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm teaching a, a, a survey class literature and culture of Spain so it's a, it's a broad survey we start in the we start in the middle ages and we move up to the 20th 21st centuries and that's a discussion class so the students come theoretically having read the material we talk about it in class we do questions maybe i put them in small groups before we talk together some days are better than others some days are more interesting than others depending and i try to add some things that maybe they wouldn't have seen because they're learning to sort of analyze literature for the first time.
0: So there's a clear, obvious sense in which literally making the lips and tongue movements and breath pauses and everything at mm-hmm. the right place is something that you physically have to practice. You do. Do you think that even into your upper level classes, there's something about practicing that's better for learning mm-hmm. than just receiving the the information and just reading something
2: certainly certainly and I think and I think that's a pedagogy that people can use in lots of different classes you have classes that are interactive where the students maybe maybe you spend one day lecturing and the other day they're doing something more interactive mm-hmm. utilizing the information they got from the lecture in a in a more meaningful way and I think that's foreign languages have been doing this for decades yeah. We're glad that the rest of the world is catching on <laughs> that it's good, it's a good way to do things for Foreign students. Or language is where it's at. People. It is,
1: absolutely. Yes it is.
0: Do you think that um you don't have to name any names or something it's not like that. So just a general impression or maybe things that you have heard about something that you think would be good if uh, languages professors or teachers incorporated more or or did less maybe the maybe the um Gentle correction or something like that. Maybe if there's if there's harsh correctors out there, or is there any in your view? Is there, have you come across anything not I'm not saying at Morris, right? Mm-hmm. But generally, that you think well, I just would really prefer if everyone just kind of made this an adjustment.
2: You know, I can't I can't really think of anything because most people who are coming out of graduate programs in in language. Uh, language and literature, and most programs, say for French or for German or for Spanish, really are a combination of language and literature because they know you're going to be teaching language. And usually as a TA in these graduate programs, that's what you're doing for the universities. I did that for three years at the Twin Cities campus when I was pursuing my PhD. I was a TA up there, but I had taught at Morris before I went up there and then I came back to Morris and my old job opened up again. Um, I, you know, I think most graduate programs are preparing their their foreign language TAs or their TAs to teach foreign language very well. Most of them. There are some maybe that, that, that are not as good as others. I have to say that Twin Cities was had an excellent preparation, an excellent methodology class, um, good mentoring for students, um, and i'm not trying to just do a plug for the twin cities campus but 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 they did it well yeah no it's um, good to hear my program at the university of kansas at the time i was there not so good not so good they just kind of threw you in the classroom without any without any any structure and that was not helpful
1: since since you feel so good and confident about the 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 way teachers are teaching in foreign language classes i wonder what is the method by which the pedagogy gets developed exactly is it through I know you mentioned um, you know reading some uh, the Chronicle or something like Mm -hmm. that I don't know if there are academic um, you know publications about teaching or if it's just like all the teachers talking together but um, you know something we focused on in the show is the fact that you know students will come into class and there's not a lot of thought to how much has gone on behind the scenes And so on one level, that's just with the professor, how much the professor goes through to prepare the class. But then the professor is drawing on a whole lot of other stuff that that has has kind of been found out to be the best way to teach it. And so I just wonder, since, you know, foreign language is doing it so well. What is the process through which w- they came up with all those best practices that mm-hmm. you're taking advantage of?
2: I think that's a good. That's a really good question, Adam. Um, I, there is there is a professional organization uh, for foreign language. It's, it's it's one of the one of the the, the biggest. It's called the um, Actful American Council on Teachers of Foreign on Teachers of Foreign Language. And they develop, uh, they work very closely with educators and have done this for, for decades, working closely with educators to, to investigate sort of pedagogies and best practices. And I think that ends up trickling down into book publications, textbook publications. When I first started teaching at the University of Minnesota, this would have been in the late 80s as a graduate student, the textbook that we were using was called, it was one called Dos Mundos, and it was a very innovative textbook. It was the first whole language approach, communicative approach. The book looked like a normal textbook, except it was divided. You might have a chapter, and the the, the part of the chapter were exercises, uh, interactive things that you might do with a partner, with a small group, and then there was a section at the back of the chapter that held all the grammar, so if you wanted a clear glam- grammar explanation, you went to those pages. But grammar was taught more intuitively. It wasn't lectured. Because you can lecture on grammar until your eyes pop out of your head. And it <laughs> doesn't mean that students can use it any better or that you have facilitated their, their, their being able to do so. And that was a really innovative textbook at the time. Uh, they had versions of it, I think, in French and in German. Well, now that textbook, the, the methodology that was set up in that textbook, is very common. That whole language approach, that communicative approach, you find in every textbook for foreign language worth its salt. The textbook uh, was was developed on the basis of a guy named Krashen, who was a linguist, and his theories about language acquisition. That was the theoretical base for this textbook. And the person who wrote the textbook has since passed away, but uh, the author of the textbook was utilizing that theory about language acquisition to create a textbook that would replicate that. Things like errors are a natural part of the process when you're learning a language. Things like it's important for students to have lots of linguistic input. So in a classroom, the professor will create an immersion environment. Does the student understand everything the professor is saying? Absolutely not. But over time, the student will understand more and more. And will be able to intuit things from the context perhaps that the student didn't know before certainly this is through lots of visual aids Uh, i remember we had uh, a method that they incorporated into this was called total physical response so you would do actions to teach verbs you would do physical actions and the students would do the physical actions with you and even if they didn't quite understand Initially, maybe what they were doing, over time, they would make the connection, the sort of kinetic um, connection between the vocabulary word and the action. So, you know, you might come into a classroom the first day, students don't know anything. You're assuming that they have no background. this would be beginning, beginning language, class, beginning Spanish. And you might talk, you might say, and you're, and you're demonstrating. So you're being kind of the, the, the crazy person in the room. And they're <laughs> laughing at you a little bit. And they see that you're comfortable with it. And you maybe will model it first. And then you'll have them do it with you. And they don't quite know what they're doing. But they're doing it with you. And at some point, you can do it. You can, you can give them things to do. And they will know what to do. So just for ex- let me think of, a, think of an example. So if I'm teaching color words, and this, and this I have done just as demonstrations in classes where I'm trying to teach this methodology. You might come in with Legos or little toys in different colors. And you might pick one up to the classroom and you tell them, you know, just watch me. And you'll do this in Spanish, but you'll use lots of gestures so they understand. And you might pick up the colors in a particular order and say, okay, this one, this is red. This is white. This is blue. This is green. This is yellow. And over, t- over, over the course of just a very few minutes, they begin to focus on the color word. And then you have them do it with you. You might have a student come up and you do it together. And then you have the student do it by himself or herself. And then you start mixing them up to see if they're figuring out the color word. And you can teach colors, you can teach basic 10 colors in, a, in about 15 minutes uh, in a first lesson. Now, does this mean that the student can reproduce this spontaneously? No. But they'll be able to recognize it. And this was one of the theories that Krashen had was that people can always recognize before they can produce. So when you're learning language as a child, You probably spent 18 months to two years hearing English spoken or whatever your native language is, hearing it spoken before you were able to start speaking. And you didn't speak at the same level you could understand. So understanding always supersedes production. It kind of goes like this and you build your vocabulary. So it's important for the teacher to come in and create lots of vocabulary, lots of language, lots of sound, even if you're not understanding all of it. Over time, you kind of intuit what's going on. And you might start with uh, going back to the color uh, demonstration to test students to see if they're understanding the color words after you've done this little color game exercise lifting blocks and showing them to your classmates for 10 or 15 minutes you might pick one up and usually there's a three-step process so I'll pick up a color block let's say it's a, a red Lego and I will say is this Lego blue and they'll say no is this Lego yellow no Is this Lego red? Yes. Now it seems very simple. They're just responding with one word answers. But the fact that they are understanding what I'm saying is huge. That they're able to respond and understand what I'm saying. Because I know they can't speak at the same level so they're just using a one word answer. The next step in the process would be to give them a choice to say, pick up a block and say, okay, is this red or is this blue? And then they might say red. They're responding with one word answer it's not complicated language, but it shows that at a certain level, when you give them a choice, they're able to produce. And that's, that's important. The third level, you might just pick up the block and say, what color is this? And they'll say red. Mm-hmm. You haven't given them the choice, but they're able to produce it. They're able to pull it out of their brain cells and produce it. And this is kind of the step-by-step process that, at least when I'm teaching beginning language, Uh, 1001, 1002, I go through when I'm teaching new vocabulary. And as the students get more expert, you can go faster and faster with this process. But honestly, I can have students knowing and being able to produce color words that maybe they haven't even seen, within 10 or 15 minutes and this is just this this sort of methodology one of the other things as I said is errors are a natural part of the process uh, so if you beat people up too early about the errors they're making whether it be in pronunciation or grammar they're going to shut down and and what is called what and called this effective filter goes up and the effective filter we can see in any classroom it's when the student gets frustrated and decides I've had enough of this. It's, it's, it's a, an, an imaginary wall that stops you from being receptive to whatever learning is the professor is trying to affect in the classroom. And it's true in language classes. It's true in any class. When this effective filter go up, you're done. You have checked out. And so that's something. There are different, there are different strategies that this book, uh, this initial book, this Dos Mundos textbook was trying to do to Help students feel less frustrated and a little bit more comfortable in the classroom. But again, lots of pantomime, lots of visuals, the professor up in the front of the room acting acting like a fool, uh, so they feel more comfortable acting like a fool in the classroom and not being too self-conscious. So that's kind of where I have started with the beginning. But again, it started with this one textbook, and now the the methodology in this textbook, this Dos Mundos textbook, probably circa late 80s, is now standard in almost all foreign language textbooks. This it's called the communicative or whole language approach.
1: Wow, yeah, that's a, a super cool example of yeah, how the the theory really does translate mm-hmm. into you know, the pref- professor's way of teaching mm-hmm. and then, you know, people's ability to grasp these things.
0: Mhm. So, it's easy for me to see how language is a central part of the liberal arts, but I wonder to wonder if you could expand on how you view the place of language in a liberal arts school or liberal arts education?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, language language study has been a part of liberal arts education uh, since, since the founding of liberal arts institutions. Mm-hmm. For me, just on a practical level, I think having a student be able to speak, even at some more rudimentary level, another language gives them insight into their own language. It allows them to be in an uncomfortable position of not always understanding everything that's going on around you, which I think is actually a very useful life lesson. Um, I've I've talked to my colleagues. We sometimes make a make a distinction between when students do study abroad. This is this is just my own personal my own personal bias, and so I apologize as if there are people out there who don't share this point of view. But for me, there's a difference between study abroad and travel abroad. Study abroad for me implies a certain level of discomfort and suffering that that is necessary for you to essentially put yourself in the position of another person. So when you go abroad and you're living abroad for an extended period of time studying, you're having to negotiate the, the subway, you have to go to the store and buy stuff, you don't know if they have it, all of this sort of discomfort and suffering is necessary for the development of the human being. And it puts you in, the, in, in somebody else's shoes. It gives you a little more sympathy for immigrants. It gives you a little more sympathy for people who are not speakers of your language because you know what it's like to not speak the language and not know the culture. And sometimes having a student who's actually a little more introverted – I think can make for a, a very successful study abroad experience because part of it is picking up cultural clues, and to do that, you have to be quiet and you have to be observant, and sometimes just listen and watch. So,
1: yeah, wow, very cool. That 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 speaks to there's something I was wondering about where my, my dad. You know, I I, I started going here uh, not this past fall but the previous fall mm-hmm. and. It's like, oh, dad, I'm going to have to take uh, some foreign language classes. And, and I, I haven't, you know, taken a foreign language class in quite some time because yeah. um, I took a break in between high school and college. And, you know, my dad was like, you know what? Just I mean, my dad doesn't know what the purpose of my philosophy degree is. So maybe he doesn't know the purpose <laughs> of, of anything <laughs> I'm studying. But particularly with foreign language, he was like, you know, why are they making you study that? You know, what's the point? But but And so that was one thing I was going to ask you. Mm -hmm. So I I like your 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 points about like insight into our own language and just just being able to kind of Mm -hmm. be in, you know, somebody else's shoes who is like totally at a loss, you know, that that seems like a a great takeaway. Mm -hmm. Uh, A question we, we we ask everybody and, you know, feel free to respond to this in any which way you want. But us as students right we would love to be able to get more out of our education if we could and mm-hmm. um, I, w- I, would, I would be interested in your advice for students maybe for your classes in particular mm-hmm. and then maybe just in their education here at, at, at college in general like what's a way they can maybe better better navigate their classes it could be something as simple as you know time management or something we've had professors talk about office hours but yeah, any hacks that you have that maybe students listening could uh, benefit from?
2: Well, I think the hacks are pretty simple. Mm-hmm. If you want to be successful in your courses, show up, do your homework. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a little more complicated than that, but that's, but that's, that's, the, that's the low bar. Gotcha. Show up and do your homework. Because if I sometimes joke around with my students, uh, I said the easiest way to fail, language classes. Beginning language classes is, is that. You've decided, I'm not coming to class, and I'm not turning in my homework. Um, most of the rest of it, we can, we can work with. Um, but if you don't do those things, if you don't meet us, you know, meet us partway with those things, uh, it, it's, hard to go, it's hard to move forward from that. You know, I have, I have two semi-adult children who are, have both graduated from universities. Of course, they didn't come to UMM because they were born in Morris. They grew up here, They did do PSEO here, but they wanted to get out of Dodge and go somewhere else. So my son went to the University of Wyoming in Laramie, Wyoming, 14 hours away from here. And my daughter went to the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. And they both had very different different ways about approaching college. And I think this can be useful to talk to students about. My son went in and he decided he wanted to be an engineer. He was going to be a mechanical engineer. He knew exactly what he thought he wanted to do from day one. Well, it was an agonizing four years. He was in in, in in great distress. We asked him, his father and I, every time he came home, are you sure this is what you want to do? Because you don't seem to be enjoying yourself. Oh, yes, he would, 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 would assure us, yes, this is what I want to do. Well, he came to, the rubber sort of hit the road, and he hit the, hit the wall at the end of his fourth year and did a complete 180 and became a theater major, doing wow. technical theater. It was demanding, but he was happier doing that. And so this is what he's looking now to do for his life. So he came in with a preordained plan that did not work. And I think the the, the important takeaway from that for, for me as an educator is if it's not working for you, you know this soon. And if you're not sure, Ask somebody, ask your advisor, ask one of your faculty members. Is this? Do you think this is the field for me? And one way that you know that it isn't is if you keep repeating courses, or you're not enjoying yourself. There, there, there is certainly at, at university when you get into your, you know, your upper level philosophy classes or the upper level language classes, the literature classes. There is a certain level of discomfort that just comes with the territory. Or if you're a uh, an organic chemistry student, there's going to be some level of of suffering that is just part of the part of the program. But 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 you have to know when the suffering is too much. And that oftentimes means that that's not the field that you should be in. That's not the field that, that allows you to demonstrate your gifts. So find the thing that you are good at. Now, my daughter went to college. She had no idea what she wanted to study. And she said, I'll just study whatever I like, and we'll go from there. We'll find a career from that. And she ended up majoring in Spanish and psychology and is looking to graduate school right now. So... I think sometimes when people come in and they know exactly what they think they want to do, keep your mind open because you may find that there are other things that you want to do. You don't know what you don't know when you come to college. Mm-hmm. There may be fields of study that you have not even dreamed of. Philosophy.
1: Yeah. I mean, Most I <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, took a religions class and it was taught by a, a philosopher and and then I was just like, oh man, this is so cool. This is it. Yeah. yeah. And And even looking back on it, I'm, I'm almost surprised that I did it because I was like, man, why why did I choose two majors? Like, why did I pick up this philosophy thing? But, yeah, I just found it so interesting. I just couldn't see not continuing it. Yeah. Well, and part of university, I mean, you know this, Adam, part of
2: university is to prepare you for your future. So part of our, fu- I think part of our function at, at universities, any universities and liberal arts colleges in particular, um, we're tasked with... Preparing students uh, intellectually in 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 a way to make themselves flexible and 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 nimble for different kinds of jobs. Whether you will actually have a job in philosophy, whether my son will actually have a job in 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 technical theater theater design, uh, remains to be seen. But it's something that allowed him to grow intellectually and creatively in a way that he wouldn't have if he was simply focused on. I have to have a major that will translate into a job and I don't I don't I don't begrudge anyone for whom that is a that is a consideration and it is a consideration for nearly everyone that's part of what we do we want to prepare you but we believe at a liberal arts college that all of the fields of study can prepare you for gainful employment gainful and fulfilling employment. you learn to work in teams you learn to analyze data you learn to be a good communicator both in written and speaking and these are things that employers are looking for sometimes those are the intangibles that they can't train you for they can train you to do other things but they can't always train you for those things
1: Mm, definitely so go philosophy (laughs) all right
0: (laughs) so do you think there's a big uh substantive takeaway that you hope that either all your students get from language courses you teach or maybe you know particular courses you're saying look I want, if, if you don't remember anything else, this is the thing that I want you to remember <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of what you've learned in, in this class. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think in the language courses, I think having, even if even if you only take a year of a foreign language to fulfill the language requirement, or you take a couple of years, it at least puts you in a position to know what you don't know. And sometimes that's that's a remarkable education. Um, you know, you always joke when the, the more education you have, the less you know the, the more you, what is it the less you know the, the more, more you mo- learn or, There's well, a few <laughs> versions, but uh, yeah <laughs> the more
1: you learn the real the more you realize you don't know That's it like that's, that. Ex- that. that's
2: exactly it. That's exactly it and I think that's valuable. To come away from a year of a foreign language class, uh, ideally we would like you to stay and major in the, the foreign language, French, German, Spanish, that would, be, that would be wonderful and do a really rewarding study abroad for half a year, that would be great. But not everybody does that, but at least having, having had the experience of, 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 of struggling to communicate in some way, whether it be written form or, or speaking, that I think can make you empathetic to other people. And actually, there have been studies that demonstrate that the more empathy you have towards a certain, a certain language group or a certain um, uh, a certain cultural group, the easier it is, the more receptive you are to learning the language of that group. So if you're not empathetic at all, you don't care. But I think the empathy is, is something that comes from the language learning. Now, in my upper-level classes, what do I hope they get from it? I hope they get uh, an understanding that because I'm teaching literature right now, that literature is a cultural artifact just like anything else, and it reflects a particular time and place uh, which it was produced. And you can learn a lot about what people think and what are important to people in different time periods based on what they wrote about.
0: And then as far as methodology, you mentioned some of your teaching strategies and and stuff. So is there anything that if someone wanted to learn more in languages... These are the things that you would do. You mentioned a, f- a bunch already, so I don't know if do you have like a big idea?
2: Yeah. Well, I think if you want, if, if you're here at UMM and you want to continue your language study, certainly take more classes. Yeah. Minor or major. That's 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 a good way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of lots of venues. We have a conversation table that my colleague Wendy Roberts runs every Wednesday at six. In Turtle Mountain Cafe, you can go with little to no language expertise, and there will be people to pair up and partner and talk to you. And it's very non-threatening. It's more threatening if you don't go and she sees you <laughs> outside of class and you haven't gone, and then she she might she might get a, get on your case because you didn't go. But it won't be threatening once you once you go there. Um, we have a lot of opportunities for students to engage with the local Latino community through the ESL classes that my colleague Wendy Roberts also oversees. And the Jane Addams, the ESL classes, there's opportunities for students to volunteer, to do internships, to be at all different levels of involvement, to be lead teachers, to be assistant to the lead teachers, to babysit the kids whose parents are doing the English classes. And those, I think, are Mondays and Thursdays. And then Tuesday evenings is the Jane Addams. It's a cultural exchange program. Again, you don't have to know any language, but having some is is useful.
0: And a bottom line methodological point is you have to be Practicing and interacting, and that's how you learn a language. That's how Is you that learn.
2: The, that's yeah. how you learn, and not being afraid to make mistakes. Yeah, being non-judgmental a, no, practice. No, because the majority of the s- mistakes that you will make will be hilarious to the person listening to you. So you just have to be ready to, like, okay, I've embarrassed myself publicly. Uh, I'll move on from that. Yeah,
0: odds are good they've made those same mistakes at some point. Unless and they're a native speaker, unless, yeah, yeah, and
2: then they will just laugh at you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, last question. We usually ask for sources for if people want to learn more and ho- hopefully there's something for a bit more advanced and something that's more f- for a broader public
2: for me i think the most effective way is to is to is to be in a classroom and some in some sort of an interactive with a human being now that, that leads to some of these, uh, these programs that you can find on, on, on different apps or on the internet, things like Duolingo, things like Babbel, things like Rosetta Stone. Um, they're only as good as the amount of time you spend with them. They are not a, they're not a magic bullet. They're not going to make you suddenly fluent despite the commercials to the contrary. Uh, I, know, I know there's a Babel commercial on television that shows, oh, you know, you're learning real conversation. What do you think we do in the classroom? We do real conversation too with a real human. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you're telling me if I put a tape on and go to sleep, I won't wake up understanding I don't perfect think, I don't speaking think perfectly? So. I
2: don't think so. Actually, the Rosetta Stone program is very good. Very, very good, and it's based on some of the methodology that uh, the communicative um, methods and um, the whole language approaches actually use. Rosetta Stone has been around since the 80s. Um, It was quite innovative at the time. It's quite good. It has, I think, a mechanism now by which you can actually interact with humans in other places, but... I'm kind of old school. I, I, I think Rotas at Stone can be really effective. Any of these programs can be as effective as you want them to be. They're not a magic. You're not going to learn it overnight, like despite what the commercials on television will will try to make you believe. Um, it, it doesn't happen that way. There's there's an effort to it.
1: Thank you. Cool. Yeah, yeah thank you so much for the You're interview. You're
2: welcome. Thank you
0: both. Appreciate it. Okay, great interview. Thanks to Dr. Stacey Aronson. Adam, what did we learn today?
1: Yeah, today I learned to appreciate the way that these foreign language teachers help students speak a foreign language because they have a good sense of these different phases that students go through in their development, and they have a plan for each one of those phases to help them learn the learn the language.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of this uh, semi-debate. I don't know if it's a heated debate, but there seems to be some amount of disagreement I've found in my experience where Some people think what you should do as students is give them assignments that experts do. So if it's like philosophy, have them think of their own argument and write a paper on that argument. Um, Some other disciplines might have different approaches to what it takes to be an expert in their field and how they would approach that. And then the idea is that, look, if you wanna become an expert, you do what the experts do and you just do it repeatedly. And of course, you're not gonna be at the level of experts at the beginning but you'll be, be good at what you practice at. So you just keep doing over time. And then other people say, well, look, because we know that there are stages of learning, there's gonna be um, skills you acquire along the way. Really, you should treat novices as novices, intermediates as intermediates, experts as experts. So the kinds of assignments you should give them should be tailored to their the, the, the stage of understanding or practice that they're at. So you wouldn't give uh, someone who's just studying philosophy a research paper to do. You would give them a little task that just sees if they understand some concept here or there, something like that. And it looks like the whole language approach that Dr. Arntzen is using kind of um, goes with the, treat people in stages and help them build up. So that was interesting and, uh, you know, I think teachers should consider you know, not just use how they were taught, but think about these issues of what are they trying to get from their students? Are they, are they treating them more like they should be experts? Or are they treating them more like they're in developmental stages?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. There's a, there's a lot for you know, the teachers to kind of consider behind the scenes that uh, a student like myself I'm not even aware of. And that concludes this episode. Links to the references our guest mentioned can be found in the show notes. Before we go here, a big thank you to the Mellon Foundation and the Humanities Division for supporting this podcast. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals participating and do not represent the University of Minnesota Morris or the University of Minnesota system. You can find our podcast on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you want to help out the show, please leave us a review on the iTunes store or share the podcast with others. Thanks for listening.
0: This has been Humanities Engaged.